Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. We are continuing the conversation with June, who is a member of our community. If you haven't heard the beginning of her story, we did three episodes with her a while back. If you go to our website and search for June, you should be able to find all of those. You can also find this podcast episode, look at the article, and it will have links to all of June's episodes in order so that you can follow her story. We're catching up with her again. I'm not exactly sure how much time has passed. Anyway, before we get to June, many of you know that we have a betrayal trauma recovery group that runs every day. It has multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones. Our coaches really understand this type of emotional and psychological abuse and the sexual coercion that wives of porn users are experiencing. They understand how to address it from an abuse perspective in order to help you get to safety as soon as possible. And when I say safety, I don't mean physical safety per se, although it could include that, but emotional safety. If he's going to continue to lie or manipulate you or gaslight you or uh, everything else, you're going to keep being harmed. And that harm needs to be stopped. You have options on how to stop his behaviors from harming you. Go to our website, btr.org, click on services. You'll see online support group and you can see the session schedule and you could get on today. You can talk to one of our coaches today. You can talk to other women who are going through it. If that doesn't work for you, we also have individual sessions. Many women schedule individual sessions because they feel a little bit more comfortable that way. The Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group, our online group, is the least expensive professional support for trauma that you can get. For an entire month where you get over 80 sessions, it's less than one therapy session. So we did that on purpose. We wanted to make it affordable for any woman who is going through this. All right, now we're going to join June again. She is continuing this conversation where she's talking about a conversation that she is having with clergy about her ex-husband receiving financial assistance from the church when he was spending money on pornography and alcohol and also when he had plenty of money. He didn't need to take money from the church. So we're going to continue that discussion now. When she says he, she means her clergy. He did say that it's very clear that he needs to speak with my husband and he said it's clear that he does not feel like giving him any more assistance would be appropriate without verifying and looking at his financials closer. And it's hard because in the church, in our particular religion, we have these donations set up for the needs of people. And I was always very happy to tithe and to give extra and to help meet these needs. But there is also sort of a requirement, or at least I was under the impression that there was kind of a requirement for this to be temporary, to help people in emergency situations, and then also to help them focus on their own self-reliance, to maybe work at the church welfare center, or take self-reliance classes, take budgeting classes, look at unemployment type of issues, you get employment somewhere else, take a second job or something like that. Or in long-term situations with a widow, for example. Like, you. You would be a good candidate for a long-term situation. You're a single mom of four. I would be a good candidate. Widows would be good candidates. It's not that it's always going to be short-term. There are going to be cases where it's appropriate to have long-term help. 
But he's not one of those guys. He's not disabled. He's not a widow. He's not mentally or physically disabled, except for with his narcissism. He's a doctor, for heaven's sake. He's not a candidate for this long term. Exactly. Conversely, when you compare this to the time in our separation that I was so destitute because he had paid nothing in support for almost five months, I had gone to the bishop and asked for a couple of food orders, which the church has a really great welfare program for food, where they deliver food to people in local congregations. And I had asked for a couple of orders until wage garnishment could go through. And Bishop gave me a couple of orders for me and the kids, and then all of a sudden cut me off completely and said, you don't need this anymore. I'm not giving it to you anymore. And I still hadn't gotten any child support checks. I still hadn't gotten any sort of support. And the despair that I felt at that time when that happened is still so painful. It is still one of the most painful feelings that I could describe. And I think I didn't survive because the church helped me. I survived in spite of them not helping me at that time. And that's a hard pill to swallow. That has hurt me for years. Mm -hmm. When they're simultaneously helping your abuser. Yes. Obviously not cutting him off. No. I tried to blow the whistle in my local congregation At the same time I was doing this, I had also called church headquarters. So I did call church headquarters. I got a name of someone that I could speak to in the auditing department, and I shared my story with them, and they were completely horrified about my story, completely horrified. That's great news. It is great news. (laughs) They did say that they've had problems in this area before, that they would see about investigating it. I tried as much as I possibly could to be a whistleblower in this situation. And it seems like I really kept running into these brick walls. And on top of that, it was everyone that I spoke to or had the chance to speak with. They were a man. You know, they had never been in this situation I want to tell a story here because you don't know what the fruits of this will be. So when I was a teacher, there was something that went down that was not right. And I wrote the superintendent and I just wrote a really short email and I said, hey, this is going down. It's not cool. I didn't hear anything for probably six months. And then all of a sudden, the superintendent showed up and had a meeting at our school with all the teachers. And I was the facilitator of that meeting because I was the one who had brought it up in the first place. And I had all of the teachers testify of what had happened. And a couple people resigned from the district because of the email and because of what I did. But I didn't really see it immediately. So I think a lot of women try to do things, right? They call somebody, they write somebody, they go to a meeting, they speak up, and the person just kind of looks at them weird. They're like, that didn't go well. But you don't know what the long-term effects of that will be. It might not be that someone resigns or that someone gets fired. It might not be that big. Who knows? But I don't want this like glazed over look that we get from male leadership, clergy, pastors, therapists, whoever it is, to stop us from speaking. Because you have no idea what has happened. This might start 
a serious policy change. We do not know. The other thing that I think is interesting is that I think that the policies, for the most part, that come down from the top of church headquarters, for the most part, are excellent policies. And they're really great. But how they are interpreted at the local level, like, for example, we do not tolerate abuse, right? Great policy. Awesome. The local leaders, the way they're interpreting it or the way they're like, oh, okay, well, I'll talk to the abuser and see what he says or whatever. That's where it gets really tricky. And I don't know what the solution to that is. None of us do. But unless we go in and have these meetings, even though my guess is you were pretty terrified after all of the abuse that you've been through with clergy and stuff, that you did it. And I'm so proud of you. And I want to encourage women, like our safety's on the line, our emotional safety, our reputation. People call us crazy. People call us those like feminazis or whatever they call us, man hater. I don't know, whatever they call us. But we need to speak up and we need to keep speaking up. And we never know. We will never know the extent of influence that we have. Yes. And more than ever, I feel so strong about that. It is easy to get discouraged. It is very easy to say, well, they didn't listen to me. They didn't take action right away. And that just means that they're never going to. I don't think that's true. If enough of us went in and, and, and spoke, they would take action eventually. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year. But if every woman who has been through this in every church or in every paradigm or with every single therapist spoke up, we could change the world. Yes. Yes. So after this all happened, I also made the decision to just start attending this congregation. And it kind of came out of the blue. Today, I had someone invite me and I trusted this person and sat by her and I went and I could not have had a more positive experience when I went to church today. Oh, that is such good news. Because for our listeners, she has been avoiding church for years, over two years. And in our church, if you don't go, it's sort of like you're the guilty one. Like, see, she's the problem because she's not coming to church. Victims get labeled with that all the time. So, oh, that's so good to hear. I'm so glad. Okay, tell me more. Tell me more. Yes. So I went to church and since this happened, I've definitely dealt with my share of flying monkeys in the congregation. And that's a narcissistic term where people kind of do the bidding and the dirty work of the narcissist by spreading rumors and lies and gossip and things like that. And let me tell you, all those people were there. They were there in the congregation, in the same lessons I was in. And it really was a testimony builder to me of the power of healing. You know, I have done a lot of work. I've gone to the BTR groups, like you've said. I've done guided meditation. I've done EMDR, inner child healing, cognitive behavioral therapy, and mentorship therapy. And I have done all of this work on healing. I've read books. I've delved into abuse and trauma and the impacts of all of that. And today I can say that I went there and I was really strong and felt for the most part unaffected emotionally. I felt that my boundaries were my boundaries and that those people and what they say or what they think really didn't have to affect me. And I do not for one second want to make it seem that we have a choice all the time for these things not to affect us. But I am saying that healing 
takes time and that healing can happen and you can get to a place where you can be in these situations again and it will be okay. It will be okay for you. (laughs) Actually, my husband's affair partner who was also in the ward. And also your really good friend before he had an affair with her. Yes. My really good friend who was also in the ward. It was her mother who was teaching one of the lessons today. And I was like, oh my goodness, what are the chances? But it was a wonderful lesson and a wonderful talk given at this last general conference. And it was one of my favorites, actually. And it was by Raina Alberto. And it was on mental health challenges and the stigmatization that doesn't need to happen for those things. And she taught the lesson. It was fantastic. And I added some things because I work in the area of mental health. We got to talking and she didn't know who I was and she wanted to know who I was. And in the parking lot afterwards, you know, I I told her who I was. And she's probably heard horrific stories about you, but she just didn't know you were the one that she had heard these horrific stories about. Yeah, got it. Yes. And I just said to her, I believe that your daughter and my husband had an affair. And I said, I don't want you to feel any way about it. I'm just telling you that I'm the wife. And she said that she was very aware that they had a relationship and she didn't know that he was still married and all of these things. And we kind of became friends, you know, we talked about our similar career interests and other things and it was left at that. And there is no way I could have had a conversation like that two years ago when this was fresh. There is no possible way. But today I had a conversation. It was a very difficult conversation with someone that I would have never dreamed I could have a conversation with before. And it's a lot like the conversation that I had with the bishop. I would have never dreamed I could have such an impactful and pleasant and peaceful conversation while saying exactly what I needed to say. This is also a testament to healing, but it's also a testament to being away from your abuser. So the years ago that you're talking about, you didn't have as many boundaries, right? And so the manipulation and fog that they can create when you don't set boundaries is really dark and really intense. And they can set it around a lot more people when you haven't set the boundaries. So the longer you set the boundaries for safety, emotional, physical, psychological, sexual safety, whatever, the longer you set those, not only do you get more and more out of the fog, but so do other people. Because these narcissists and abusers, they can't whip up the fog as easily when their victims set boundaries. Yes. And I feel that that has really been also a roadmap to trying to co-parent with a narcissist. We are still having major issues, major issues, and issues where the kid's safety has even been a concern. And issues, of course, where there's just jerky, abusive things going on. And the more that I'm in these situations, and the more that I just do not react and just set those boundaries, you know, set the boundaries for safety, set the boundaries that I need to set, the more that I find it not affecting me as much. Now, it's hard because I do see some of this affecting the children, and that is a big challenge. It breaks my heart. When it is very clear to me that in reading about co-parenting with a narcissist, there is a couple of really great sites and great resources on that. But in reading about that, they will use the children to hurt you when it is apparent that they can't hurt you directly anymore. 
And I feel that that is what is happening. And that is horrifying. It's horrifying. It is. Yeah. Well, and the boundaries you have to set are really rough too. For example, I set a boundary that my children go out in the clothes that they came in with. And the reason I set that boundary is because he was stealing my clothes. I would send them out in nice clothes and he would send them back hand-me-down rags from his family. And so I asked repeatedly, please send them back in the clothes I sent them out with. And he said, it's impossible. He was like, well, you wash their clothes. You know, he just did all these things. Finally, I just said, okay, I'll send them back in the clothes you send them in. So I saved some of his clothes from when they had come back in their rags. And one day I sent them out in his rags. And we've been doing that ever since. But it breaks my heart. My children do not want to put those rags on. And I don't want to send them out of the house like that. But that is the boundary that I set. And I said, you guys, I'm so sorry. And they said, mom, this hurts us. I said, I know your dad's choices hurt everyone. They hurt me. They hurt you. I'm sorry that you don't have snow boots when you go to his house, but he needs to provide those for you. That's his job. And I'm divorced from him. I don't need to like babysit him anymore or make sure that your needs are met when it's his job to take care of you. And it's so hard to make those choices. And I don't think, and you tell me, I don't think that women can start making these boundaries unless they have a lot of support and sort of a rational, sensical, when I say sensical, I mean someone who understands this type of abuse to help them set the boundaries because otherwise that type of boundary seems really hard. Like I seem like I'm this awful, terrible person who's sending my kids out in rags, right? And I had to make that decision based on values work based on assessing my values, assessing the consequences of his behavior to his own children, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think you could have set the boundaries that you set without the BTR community, without betrayal, trauma, recovery? Definitely not. And when I first started learning about boundaries, it was a foreign concept to me. I was never taught this growing up. I was never taught this in my faith. I was never taught this in college even, and it has really been a learning process. When I started learning about boundaries, I began setting them and trying to, and of course, when I started setting boundaries, I inevitably made mistakes along the way, as everyone does that starts setting boundaries as a brand new practice. We all make mistakes. How did the betrayal trauma recovery community help you progress in your knowledge and your application of those boundaries? Definitely, I feel like I could come with a scenario. I could come with a real life problem and be directed into what my values were, what my boundaries should be around those values, and what that ultimately looks like in practice. And being supported, being supported in in whatever boundary I chose that was my boundary and I was going to be supported in that. And I knew I had backup and that was huge. The other thing that's so hard about boundaries is let me read you this quote I just saw. So this is a line from ancient Sanskrit scripture. It says, you are only entitled to the action, never to its fruits, which I think is really good. And that's how boundaries are. And that's why people are so afraid to set them. Because you set a boundary and you have no idea what the consequences are going to be. So you just have to know that what I'm doing is for my safety and this is what feels right right now. Now, you can always adjust. You can always be like, oh, I set that boundary and uh, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. And next time I'll do it differently, right? Like you said, you're going to make some mistakes. Things are going to need to be adjusted. 
my boundary that I set, I didn't want to get divorced. I didn't think divorce was going to be where that led. All I knew was I need no contact because I cannot have any semblance of communication with this person without him lying to me, manipulating me, trying to pull one over on me, nothing. There can be no communication without that. And I didn't know what the consequences would be. Some women, they set a boundary and their husband is like, wow, I've been abusive. I'm sorry. We don't know what the consequences are going to be. And that is one thing that you really need support for, right? You need support to know, okay, even though this could lead to something really awful or good or bad, and we have no idea, if we focus on the now and the safety in the moment, then it will always lead us down the right path. Exactly. And boundaries can change. When I first started in this process of going through litigation for custody, for example, it was very expected that we co-parent and we communicate. And I took what that judge said very seriously. I would write very detailed email updates every month with the kids' appointments, with how they were doing, with pictures, all of these things to him. And don't you know, very quickly, this last court date, I found out that a lot of that was used against me. A lot of it was sadly, very, very sadly used against me. And this judge didn't really care about that so much. He actually made a comment that these people are divorced. They're not going to co-parent. Who cares? So while I am totally and willingly invested in co-parenting with a healthy person, I doubt very much that that can happen in my situation. And so now I'm left kind of renegotiating all right, where does this leave me as far as communication and how much I want to have and how free it needs to be and where the line needs to be drawn? Where is the boundary? In my research I have done, I've learned about, yes, they have the gray rock and they have the no contact, which is kind of the gray rock, very minimal contact. They also have what is called the yellow rock where you have to have contact with this person. This would maybe be like in a co-parenting situation or maybe with a narcissistic employer or someone you have to have contact with. You cannot get away from it. But the yellow rock is a gray rock underneath and it maybe has some yellow paint on it to make it pretty, but it's really still a gray rock. And so that's kind of been the basis for my communication moving forward, where my emails to him are short to the point unemotional. And they are straightforward, full of facts, and that's it. It is nothing else. Nothing else needs to be there. My communication is polite, but brief. It is the communication that I would have with someone like a boss or a coworker or something like that. And so in my research, I've kind of found that that's the next best thing. That's the next best boundary that I'm going to try. We'll see if that works. I don't know. Maybe eventually I will have to go no contact. Yeah. We do no contact and gray rock both. So all communication goes through my dad. That's the no contact. He's blocked on my phone, my computer. So he has no way of directly calling me or contacting me besides mailing me something or coming to the door, right? Knocking on the door, which he doesn't do. And then my dad does gray rock to him. I mean, we have to have two layers with this guy. And he lies to my dad and tries to manipulate my dad. It's insane. Okay, we're going to pause the conversation here and continue it again next week. So stay tuned. June and I will continue talking about all the issues that she's had to deal with, which are many. 
And the reason why I love having women from our community on the podcast is because everyone can benefit from hearing other women's stories. So as you listen to the podcast, if you think that was me or this happened to me and you want to come on the podcast, please do. Email my assistant, Kari, at K-A-R-I at B-T-R.org. Share a little bit of your story and say, I'd love to go on the podcast. You can use an alias. And we want to hear from you. Also, we love it when people comment on these articles on our website. Every podcast has a corresponding article on the website. You can go, you can listen to it there, you can read the transcript. And we love your comments. Tell us what you think. Tell us your stories. Every single one of your comments also helps the algorithm on Google, and so it helps women find us who are isolated. Those of you who spent years going down the pornography addiction route or with a CSAT or something and didn't get anywhere and you wished you could have found BTR first, that really helps. So go to our website, make a comment, share this on your social media, tag us on Instagram. Any way that you can help share this helps isolated women find us. Another way to help other women is to rate this podcast on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. You are amazing. I'm so honored and grateful to be able to podcast about this and also amazed that you listen. So thank you and I appreciate your help in educating the world about how pornography really is an abuse issue and and helping the world understand emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. Until next week, Stay safe out there.